Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast, hosted by Dave Jenkins. The Equipping You in Grace podcast is a podcast about helping Christians develop a biblical worldview in a conversational tone about issues inside and outside the church. Now, for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Welcome back to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. I'm, my name is Dave, and I'm the host for this podcast. And with me today, I have Nancy Guthrie. Nancy, welcome to the Equipping. Welcome back, I should say, to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. Thanks, Dave. I'm so happy to be with you and your listeners. Thank you so much for agreeing to come back on and uh, come on the hot seat. Absolutely. <laughs> Can you uh, just uh, catch us up on what's going on in your life, marriage, ministry, and what writing projects are you working on? Well, the biggest thing I've been working on is that this last fall, I launched a series of workshops around the country called the Biblical Theology Workshop for Women. So I did that in, let's see, maybe um, almost 20 places since last fall. This spring, like everybody else, everything of mine has gotten canceled, but hopefully we've just uh, postponed them. And of course, we hold all dates in the future loosely at this point, don't we? Um, Not knowing what will happen happen with uh, COVID-19, but uh, hopefully we'll be able to do those that had to get canceled in the fall. Plus, there's a whole list of a dozen or so uh, new locations around the country where I'm going to be doing these workshops. So at these workshops, there's basically three sessions, and uh, in one session, we do kind of an overview of the contents of the Bible and take a stab at telling the story of the Bible, what's the complete storyline of the Bible. We begin the idea of there being a difference between storyline and particular themes in the Bible. Then in the second session, we work on those themes. What are some of the big themes that the divine author of the Bible wrote into his book that uh, it's going to be helpful for us if we want to understand what his message is to us. It's going to be helpful for us to know what those themes are and be able to um, see them as we read the Bible. And then that third session, we do that. We go to various parts of the Bible and see how various themes arise and the difference that makes in how we interpret and understand and and apply that part of the Bible. So those have been really, really fun to me because women come, they get there early, they are excited for what they're there to learn, and they leave. Uh, some They often say, my mind is spinning, uh, but they say they leave with more both passion and curiosity about their Bibles. And then, of course, my real aim is that they leave with more love for Christ as they see the beauty and sufficiency and necessity of Jesus Christ from all these different angles that are that, that we see uniquely see him from as we look at the Bible through various themes. That's wonderful. How, how are they generally received? Oh, fabulous. Um, yeah, just women have a great time. You know, there's lots of energy because, you know, a certain host will, um, a church or a seminary has hosted them, but then there's women from maybe 100, 200 different churches. And so they come with just lots of energy to learn. Um, you know, of all the workshops we had this year, only one of them uh, didn't sell out before the workshop. And so wow. to me, that just shows that women are hungry to think deeply about the scriptures. They're hungry for something more than just uh, celebrity, uh, personality, uh, felt needs driven, uh, 
Instagram driven um, uh, kinds of events for women, but that they want to take the Bible seriously and, and want to learn how to handle it. And so that's really fun to get to be a part of. Well, thank you so much for uh, being an instrument of, of God's word. And I know God is wonderfully using that uh, in the lives of, of many people. So it's very encouraging to, to hear the response and what you're doing. Thank you thank so you. much. You're welcome. Mm-hmm. That's really fun. Mm-hmm. Hey, you want to just catch us up on what uh, writing projects you're working on? Yeah, well, I have a brand new book we're going to talk about today, Saints and Scoundrels in the Story of Jesus. That comes out uh, this month. And then uh, I have another book that will come out this fall in September called God Does His Best Work with Empty. Tyndale will publish that, and I am looking forward to that. And honestly, after writing these two books in one year, last year, I'm not writing anything because it just wore me out. So probably the only writing I've been doing is uh, some papers for a couple of seminary classes I've taken, and I've got a couple of articles and blog posts to write, but uh, I'm kind of slow to take on a next book project, although I'm sure it'll happen. Yeah. Well, you're, you're just so prolific. I don't think you can help it, you know? It's like, well, uh, I understand. Uh, prolific is a nice way of saying uh, you talk too much. Um, I didn't say that. <laughs> I didn't say that. That's not what I meant. I know. That's what I mean. Man, won't you just shut up? <laughs> but you have so many good things to say from God's word to us, Nancy. So we're just so well, blessed by you. I hope so. You are, we are, for sure, for sure. Uh, can you uh, just tell us a little bit about this uh, new book that's coming out, Saints and Scoundrels and the Story of Jesus, why you wrote it, and how you hope it'll be received? Yeah, I put this together actually not initially thinking that it would be a book. I, I teach a Bible study in the summers at my own church, and it's really fun because it's not just women from my church, women from all over the Nashville area come because so many times churches are not offering something in the summer. And so women from other churches feel free to come. And so over the last six or seven years, you know, I've taught through a number of my books and the summer before last, I was coming up on a summer where I didn't really have anything new uh, that I hadn't, that I'd written that I'd already done. And so I was like, well, what do I want to teach on? And I just had some curiosity for a while about some particular people in the story of Jesus and wanted to spend some time understanding a little bit more about who they were and what what made them tick, what motivated them to do what they did or to respond to Jesus in the way that they did. And so I always figure if there's something that I'm kind of curious about, maybe other people are too. And so that summer, I just, I was, I was teaching for five weeks. And so I just picked five individuals in some cases and in others, uh, groups of people that are uh, key in the story of Jesus and worked my way through them. And the way I ended up organizing, I called it saints and scoundrels because some of these people in the story of Jesus are, wonderful <laughs> and we want to follow their example and some of them are terrible and but you know we we really need to understand both and, and what I discovered is I put together these messages I hadn't even anticipated this but I realized that each person or group of people demonstrated something 
about the necessity of putting all of our faith, hope, and trust in Jesus Christ and the danger of refusing to embrace Christ. And so as I was getting ready for the summer, I I sent out a note to the women in my church and I just said, I I didn't necessarily know this would be the case, but this really turns out to be very evangelistic that each one of these people we look at, they show us something beautiful about the generosity of the grace of Jesus toward the worst of sinners. And that they, as we look at them, we begin to think, you know what, there's hope for me. And there's hope for people I love. That people who have so far rejected Christ uh, might be willing to embrace him and be transformed from a scoundrel into a saint. Yeah, when I I, I love this book. I, I love this topic. I mean, one of my favorite all-time Bible stories is, is the Samaritan woman in John 4. I mean, and you, you think of a woman who's outside of society, you know, she's she's going at um, at noon, that text says, and, you know, they would have gone early morning, not in not uh, at noon when it was hot. And uh, so so right there, that text tells us she's she's an outcast among her society. And, and what does Jesus do? He, he does, he comes and he, he ministers to her. He showed, he crosses cultural and, and uh, uh, spiritual uh, boundaries to, to reach this woman and questions her in a loving way and she she, op- she her eyes are open to Jesus and yeah it's beautiful it's just incredible so I loved I loved your all that to say I loved your book because I think that what, what you're doing is is helping people to to see those types of connections maybe that they maybe they've heard of it but they haven't like thought about it in that way and I think yeah. the, the book the, the, the book does a really really good job opening that people's eyes to those things I hope so definitely how did how does studying these different uh, Bible characters teach you about Christ? Well, with each one, they show kind of a different aspect of of who Jesus is. You know, when we, for example, uh, when we look at the very first chapters about John the Baptist, and it's pretty amazing that John the Baptist actually recognizes Jesus from the womb. Um, you remember how Mary goes to visit Elizabeth, and John the Baptist in the womb kind of leaps for joy in his mother's womb at the presence of his Savior, who's in Mary's womb. That's, that's pretty amazing. It's like, you know, this pre-birth recognition. And then at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, when he goes to John the Baptist to be baptized, John the Baptist seems to have a very significant and important understanding of who Jesus is and why he has come when he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I mean, it's it's stunning, actually, that, and, and certainly the Holy Spirit must have revealed it to him, that he's able to look at Jesus, his relative, and say, oh, this person is actually the uh, once-for-all sacrifice that's going to put an end to all of these centuries after centuries of animal sacrifice. So, uh, you know, a story like that tells us something about who Jesus is. Uh, But then, you know, like when I think about the chapter on on the Pharisees, as Jesus uh, works his way through seven woes, as he points out the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, and he's really clear about where that hypocrisy 
bureaucracy, where that what that's going to lead to. Uh, it, it's going to lead to eternal separation from God. They are going to reap what they have sown in terms of this religious hypocrisy. And yet in the middle of that, we discover this one Pharisee, Nicodemus, who comes to Jesus at night. He's, he's, he's wanting to understand Jesus's miracles and what's given him this power. And Jesus says to him, well, actually, the most significant miracle that needs to happen is, is you need a miracle. You need a miracle of being made alive in the interior of your soul. You need a second birth. You need to be born again. And when we read about him early in John, we're a little bit sad because the, the scene ends and we don't know what happens. But then uh, after the crucifixion, Jesus's body is hanging on the cross and Joseph of Arimathea, this rich man, asks if he can have Jesus's body. And when the scene is described, Joseph is not alone going to get the body of Jesus. We discover that someone is with him and it's surprise, surprise, Nicodemus. And when I picture the scene, I just picture these two wealthy, well-dressed guys and they, they go outside the gates of the city and maybe put a ladder up next to the cross and climb up and they're pulling out the nails and they're quite literally embracing Jesus as they take his body down from the cross and as they anoint it with, we're told that Nicodemus has brought 75 pounds of spices with him. So if we think about what this, that tells us about Jesus, and clearly they have recognized, even though he has died this hideous death, that really he is who he claimed to be and he he is worthy of the kind of burial of a king. And so each one of these people shows us something like that about who Jesus is. Yeah, that that's that's really, really good. Really important to understand. Um you write about getting specific with our repentance. What do you what do you mean by this? Well, we write about that in context of John the Baptist, because we learn about John the Baptist that he's out there in the Jordan baptizing. It, it's so fascinating to me that he's out in the wilderness and he seems like kind of a prickly guy. His his message is not a feel-good message, and yet the cities are emptying out, and they're all going out to John the Baptist where he's preaching them and he's calling them to come into the waters of the Jordan where he wants to baptize them a, what he calls a baptism for repentance and so you just have to picture them wading out into the water and doing what actually only Gentiles needed to do and so I mean it's a very humble thing they're doing in the first place it's like they're admitting that just because they're a, a, a physical descent a descendant of Abraham that they might not actually be in the family uh, and so they're willing to go out and be baptized but and it, but it says for the forgiveness of sins so i just picture them going out and john the baptist is there and he's calling upon them to repent of their sins they have to name them and i guess one reason i think about that is i i think and perhaps i should just be personal i think it's easy for me to say week by week in the church service we come to the point of confession of sins to be very general or like if we we're praying along with the lord's prayer we can be very general in our prayers uh, of repentance saying you know, Lord, forgive me my sins. Um, but I think what we're called to do is for repentance to be far more specific, 
to be humble enough and yet bold enough in the presence of Christ to point out, to name our sin, uh, I think it's only then can we really turn from it and then ask for and receive the power to go the other direction, that it comes from being very specific about specific sins and not general. Yeah, that, that's really good. Um, I, uh, I, uh, I had permission to, to share this uh, at, a, at a men's retreat, so I'm, I'm sharing it here from, from my wife. My wife says, I, I don't want to hear, I don't want to hear general apology. I want to hear specifically about what you did, you know, when, yeah. I, when I upset her. And so when I said that to the guys, they're like, no way your wife wants to, to hear that. No way that she wants you to specifically apologize and, and to acknowledge what you did. I'm like... Well, I'm just telling you that she does and she did. And uh, guess what? Now I'm just going to challenge you to go back home and, and ask your wife, uh, do you want me to apologize generically or do you want me to apologize specifically? And I'm just going to go ahead and say the answer for you uh, guys. Uh, she wants you to apologize specifically. What's the point? It's exactly what you just said. You know, God wants us to apologize specifically. It's not just, it's confess your sins and he's faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you of, of his uh, by his righteousness and so I think that apologizing and confessing our sin and repenting of it specifically is is absolutely critical and I think that that's part of keeping short accounts with God which yeah. is absolutely critical so you're, you're right well you know we can talk about really a lot of amazing conversion stories in the Bible like you know for example the Apostle Paul's and we wonder perhaps why change in our own life doesn't look more like like that more dramatic what would you say to someone who's frustrated at, at how little progress they've made in their spiritual lives and they wish that they were making more progress well I would say a couple things first of all I would say there's a big thing there's a big difference in between zero progress and no progress um, if you are spiritually made alive there is going to be some spiritual fruit of that that is produced in your life it may be a small amount if you're spiritually alive or it may be a huge amount but there's going to be some so it is important to kind of examine ourselves am I am I just involved in church but I'm really a spiritually dead person and maybe that's why I have no power to forsake sin maybe that's why I have no desire even to forsake sin but you know if, if if you have even the desire to forsake sin, the desire to know and love Christ more, that in itself is spiritual fruit. Yes. But what we see in the Bible is that it is the grace of God extended to us that, it, especially uh, by the Holy Spirit, as the Holy Spirit generates this fruit in our lives. And this happens by being connected to Jesus Christ by faith. It's, it's a, you know, the, the theological term is being united to Christ. And honestly, this is not something I grew up learning about. And I, I wish I'd understood this a long time ago, that, you know, all of our spiritual lives depends on this reality of being united to Christ by faith. And so that his new newness, his resurrection life, his his power is increasingly uh, becoming a part of our lives. So, but I think getting back to your question, what I would say to the person who's frustrated or disappointed about the progress they're making, I guess I would just 
asking the question. Well, God has particular means through which he generates this spiritual growth in our lives, what's called the ordinary means of grace. And that includes sitting under the preaching of the word, reading and studying the word, taking in the sacraments, being a part of a fellowship, a, a body of other believers, prayer. These are the ways God works. And it's just amazing to me how some people seem like they think that they can just be, you know, on some kind of spiritual search, you know, maybe they have certain people they read or they're just kind of on their own and they don't avail themselves of, you know, they think, oh, maybe, well, the preaching's boring or I don't really need the sacraments or, you know, I don't like going to church. Well, these are the means through which God has determined that he will do this life generating work in the lives of people. And so my first question would be, are you placing yourselves under and uh, in the place to receive the grace that God has promised to give, uh, but uniquely through his intended means? That is uh, that is wonderfully, wonderfully well said. You know, J.C. Ryle in his classic book on holiness, which if you guys haven't read that, it is it is a it is a couple hundred pages, but it's it's well worth your time that there's just gold in that in that book. Um, but in it, he says that if there's even the tiniest sliver of, of God's grace in our lives, um, that that's evidence that that God's at work in our lives. So it's not a it's not a um, it's not a uh, quantity. Like if there's um, if there could be even the tiniest speck of evidence of God's work in your life, like you said, fruit in our lives because of our union with Him, um, we should give thanks to God. You know, people I think look a lot of the times. Well, I don't have this in my life, and there's not this amount of change and they look at other people and I, I think that what we need to say is just stop looking over there and just start looking at the looking at the Bible looking at uh, what it teaches and reading it and studying it and and getting some encouragement from other people that, that are more spiritually mature and and please of course we want to say please kindly stop comparing yourself with other people um, and just just please look to Jesus he's he's enough for you and I um, I, I say that in that way because I, I get a lot of emails that people that are really really struggling with assurance and it, it hurts it hurts me it hurts my heart really it does because um, I, I personally have never struggled with that but when somebody struggles I know what it's like to struggle with things and, and so it hurts and um, hurts it hurts my heart and I want people to be growing and, and not struggling I know that we struggle uh, through this life with a lot of different things but uh, God wants us to be well in him and, and this is one way that we can be well that we can sing and it is well with our soul, you know, and mm-hmm. and that's what God really wants—not just singing the song, but but actually coming from the heart. Mm. Yeah. So you write that Jesus comes from a long line of outsiders, outlaws, scoundrels, and sinners. Why? Why is knowing this helpful for Christians today? Well, I think sometimes there are there are some of us who just think, you know what, I've done something so despicable um, that I don't think there could be a place for me in God's family. I, or I've done something, I've been someone uh, who hasn't come from the right kind of family or the right kind of background. And we just think, you know, I could never be someone that the Bible would describe as a saint. That just seems so out of reach. And so I think it's really helpful 
goal to look at the actual physical family of Jesus. And both Matthew and Luke give us a genealogy of Jesus. So they show us the line of people that he came from. And when you examine the list, which I do from the genealogy in Matthew 1, I mean, one thing that strikes you is just that some of these people, yes, they lived by faith, but they did some despicable things. Uh, if you think about Abraham and him lying about the fact that Sarah was his wife, and you get to someone like Judah, and wow, I mean, the things he did, you know, sleeping um, with his, his daughter-in-law, uh, who he thought was a prostitute, and then wanting to put her to death. Uh, I mean, there's just so many people like that. And, and when you read that genealogy, it interestingly includes a number of women, and all of those women are Gentiles, so that tells us right away that people who are outsiders can become part of the family, get welcomed into the family, so much so that they're named in his genealogy. But the other thing about those women is that all of them have a touch of sexual scandal. And I I find, especially as I teach women, that there are, there are women who have sexual sin or sexual abuse in their past, and they feel so dirty um, that they just really wonder if they can ever really be accepted by God. It was interesting when I, uh, this last summer I, I taught uh, two summers ago I taught five weeks on this and then this last summer I did five weeks more and this last summer I actually taught it twice each week during the summer on on Tuesday nights I would teach it in my suburban church which had you know lots of church ladies come and then on Saturday nights I was teaching it uh, closer into the city in Nashville for a ministry that reaches out to women coming out of being human trafficked. Mm. So I'm there speaking to a group of women who have been exploited and who would never want to, you know, list out for anyone some of the sexual sin that they have gotten caught up in. And it was so interesting, Dave, because, you know, the truth is both audiences needed the same message mm. because both audience have sexual sin that they would like to hide. And the answer to sexual sin is not covering it up. Mm. The answer is bringing it to Jesus, knowing mm. that he, his grace is enough to cover, to provide forgiveness for our sin, no matter what we've done. He, he's the one who makes people who feel dirty, people who are dirty, he's the one who makes us clean. That's um, that's so well said. You know, I, I was, I used to be one of those people that, that felt so sexually uh, dirty. I, I looked at, I was addicted to enslaved, excuse me, to pornography. This is about 15 years ago, and and um, I just started thinking about. I, I had the categories in my head of sin and depravity and, and those things. I, I was very well read in the Bible and theology, and so I knew what those things meant. But I, but I started thinking about sin, and it, it took me to the logical conclusion about how selfish I really was at this time. And um, boy, it just the light bulb, the Holy Spirit just hit me like a light bulb. The light bulb started going off, <laughs> and that one hurt pretty bad. I, I remember, I remember that uh, even today, fifteen years later or so, and um, it was uh, the, the selfish, the level of I'm saying just for me, not anybody to shame anybody, but the level of selfishness that I was engaged in was it was wrong, and God convicted me of that, and and that's what He's good at, you know, He's He's so good at opening our eyes to to see the ugliness of our sin, and, and He did that, and um, just so very thankful He did. So I, I really 
it is. Yeah, I appreciate you, you appreciate sharing about that because it's there's so many people that I know whenever I share about that, there's just so many people that are struggling in silence and they just need to know, hey, just you can come out of that. You don't have to live in it. You can come out of it into the light and you can have freedom and, and hope and, and life and, and um, God won't reject you. Um, so there's, there's, like you said, there's good news. You know, we're, we're all hypocrites to some degree, perhaps telling people we'll pray for them, even though we don't, ouch, or maybe we judge others for their attitudes or we justify our own. Who is an example of a hypocrite in the Bible and what can we learn from that? Well, the people that Jesus calls out as being hypocrites are the Pharisees. And at the heart of their hypocrisy is they call, they present themselves as the ultimate law keepers. And they have taken God's law as we have it in Deuteronomy, Leviticus, but they've added to it or they've expanded who it applies to. For example, they've taken laws of maybe cleansing rituals that the priests were supposed to do before they entered the tabernacle or temple and they say everybody has to do that or they and they completely um mishandled the sabbath they, they've taken what was meant to be a gift to god's people for them to anticipate the ultimate sabbath rest he has promised to lead us into and then instead they made it this heavy rule keeping burden and their big problem was that while they they kept a lot of nitpicky rules what jesus really calls them out on is that there were big important laws from the laws of Moses that they completely ignored. This is what he's getting at when he uses that metaphor we've heard before that they strain a gnat but swallow a camel. So in other words, you know, they want to be so careful that they don't eat a little dead body and just in case some gnat has gotten into their wine vat and gotten into their wine, they strain the wine as they drink it so they're sure not to drink this dead body of an animal. But he's saying in the way that they ignore the big things of God's word. And by that, I think about uh, some that we're very familiar with, big parts of the law, things like love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Or what we read about in Micah 6, 8, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love, mercy, and walk humbly with your God. And so here's these big central commands that they have are clearly ignoring. And so what he's saying is, okay, yeah, you, you strain that gnat, that tiny little animal that you aren't going to drink. But in the way you're ignoring these big commands, it's like you're you're swallowing a camel. Like uh, you are completely missing the, the point of the, the reason God gave the law and, and how it's intended to work in a person's life to show them their need for Christ and to show them the character of God instead of just to be this heavy burden that they put on other people. Yeah, that that's really, really well said. In one chapter, you um, you you explain Mary, who anoints Jesus, and, and then Judas, who seemingly throws away his life. Now, why did you choose to pair those characters together, and, and what do they teach us about the Christian life? Yeah, I pair them together because the gospel writers do. Uh, you know, we know that Jesus is one of the disciples, but... But the first time we actually hear him speak, where he is actually quoted, is in this scene that is the week leading up to the death of Jesus. And it's a dinner party. So, I mean, we have to picture the scene. Uh, one gospel tells us it's at Simon the leper's house, but we're also told that Lazarus is there. So think about the, what it was like at this table. Sitting around this table, having 
having dinner is Lazarus, who only a short time before was dead in the grave uh, for four days so that he stinketh, and he's been resurrected, and there he is at the table. And then also at the table is this Simeon, this leper, this one who's been had been estranged from his family and was facing all this deterioration and death, and now he's been healed, and he is there at the table. So this is an incredibly, uh, a table that's full of so much joy at the presence of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus. And clearly, Mary, the sister of Lazarus, her heart is overflowing with gratitude. And she kind of surprises everybody when she comes in and she's got this jar of ointment, this nard. And we discover actually from Judas how much it's worth. It's worth a a year's wages. Well, that's an enormous amount of money. I mean, anybody can think about, okay, so about how much do you make in a year? Imagine having a bottle of perfume or ointment that is worth that much. And she begins pouring it out on Jesus. And Jesus says that she's doing something beautiful. He, he relates it to the fact that he he knows he's about to be killed and going to be in a tomb. He says she's anointing him for burial. So maybe actually Mary has been listening to what Jesus has said because he's repeatedly said he's going to be crucified and buried. And then three days later, he's going to be raised. And so maybe she's been listening more closely than some of the other disciples who maybe they heard that, but they just don't want to believe it. But, but when she pours out this expensive bottle of ointment over Jesus, it's... It's this expression of what Jesus is worth to her. And she's saying Jesus is worthy of her best. She's He's worthy of this extravagant gift. But as I said, this is the first time we hear Judas speak in the gospel story. And, and what does he say? I mean, he just says, you know, that she needs to stop that because that bottle of ointment could be sold and the money given to the poor. And John, the gospel writer, uh, points out to us that while we might think this is being altruistic, that it isn't at all, that what's really at work in Judas's Heart is that he's the one who carries around the money bags and so he'd like for this to be sold and the money to go in the money bag so that he can then pilfer from it and use some of it for his own benefit um, so I, I I put them together because I, I just think in in Judas and Mary we see two opposite approaches to Jesus Mary loves Jesus and she sees him as worthy of whatever it might cost to worship and love him and follow him. And Judas clearly he's just been hoping to use Jesus to enrich himself. In fact, it's it's right after the scene that he leaves and he goes and meets with the chief priests and, and his question is telling. He says to them, how much will you give me if I turn him over to you? Uh, and, you know, they offer him just, a, you know, a few pieces of silver and perhaps he's disappointed by that and thinking he might get more or perhaps that's all Jesus is worth to him too. Uh, but but clearly Jesus is not worth following if it's going to cost him anything. But and he's he's heard Jesus saying, uh, you know, if you're going to follow me, you need to take up your cross and follow me. You're, if you want to gain your life, you're going to have to lose it. And clearly, as we see, Judas takes steps to betray Jesus. He has settled in his own heart and mind that Jesus is not worth it. He is not worth carrying a cross. He is not worth suffering for. Uh, Especially if he's not going to end up on the other side of it, uh, somehow with his pockets lined with more money, Jesus just isn't worth it. And so Mary and Judas are an incredible contrast uh, centered around how they see the worth.
worth of Jesus. And to Judas, he's worth very little. And to Mary, he's worth something that's incredibly precious to her. That's uh, that's beautifully said. What was your biggest takeaway from studying these different uh, characters in the Bible? Oh, that's easy. My biggest takeaway is the enormity, the generosity, the expanse of the grace of Jesus Christ towards sinners. Hmm. Just over and over again in these stories, like, you know, the story of Zacchaeus, Jesus is walking along, he looks up and he sees him in a, in a tree and he says, okay, Zacchaeus, come down because I'm going to your house today. And then he, he, he goes and he says, salvation has come to this house. So here's this terrible scoundrel and Jesus has so much grace. He actually comes seeking for him and and uh, points him out and goes to his house and extends such grace and forgiveness to this scoundrel. Uh, but perhaps the most significant one to me was looking at someone that I think we don't think of as a scoundrel, and that is the Apostle Paul. And yet if we look at Paul's story, I mean, if we read his story in Acts, especially in Acts 9, I mean, it's very vivid, the, the, his evil. he It says about him at one point that he hates Christians and he hates Jesus so much that he is breathing threats and murder. I mean, that's very vivid. And it it talks about how he's, you know, he's headed to Damascus. He's got the papers in his pocket because he's going to go in and he's going to, you know, knock on doors in the middle of the night and drag away moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas to put them in chains and bring them back to Jerusalem where they'll be put on trial and likely put to death. And the evil and the hatred that he's breathing in and out is, is, is so vivid there. And yet, what happens? Jesus reveals himself to him. Jesus calls him. Jesus saves him. Jesus transforms him. Jesus fills him with his spirit. And there is such dramatic transformation in his life. It's interesting later what Paul says about himself. He calls himself something that's a bit mystifying to us because he he says about himself that he is the worst of sinners. Now, when I first read that, I thought to myself, okay, he's probably saying that because of his cruelty and hatred and his part in killing Christians before his conversion. But I'm not sure that that's what leads Paul to say that he's the worst of sinners. Because another thing we discover about Paul, we read about it in uh, 2 Corinthians 12, where he talks about um, how 14 years before he was basically, he talks about, he he entered into the third heavens. He, 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 He saw the glory of God in his heavenly dwelling place. And so I think between that and between seeing the glory of the risen Jesus there on the road to Damascus. I think that caused him to see himself in light of that holiness and glory and that what it did for him was it humbled him. And so and so when he says he calls himself the worst or the chief or the foremost of sinners, it's because he sees himself in light of the radiant holiness of Jesus and, and what he sees in himself in light of that is his corruption and contamination and his, his failure. But he says in that person passage, he says um, that God was pleased to save him, the foremost, the chief, the worst of sinners, so that he might put on display his patience towards sinners and the grace of Jesus. Paul looks at his life and he says, you know what? God wants people to look at my life and say, if God can save Saul, Paul, maybe he could save me too. And I think that's probably my biggest takeaway from looking at these various characters, just the generosity of grace toward the worst of sinners. 
Amen, sister. Amen. Uh, where where can people go to find out more about your work online? Uh, either you know, either on your website or on social media or otherwise. Yeah, certainly. Well, you can go to nancyguthrie.com and you'll find a lot about a lot of my books about my biblical theology workshops for women, about the respite retreats my husband and I host for couples who've experienced the death of a child. Um, over the next month or so, Crossway is going to be posting a lot of video and a podcast another podcast that I have that I've done um, on saints and scoundrels and so you find a lot either of those places wonderful wonderful um well there's a lot that we could really dive into about this topic Nancy do you have any uh, takeaways for our listeners today well I would just say that to be a saint doesn't mean that you never sin or that you always do what is right that's the way we think about saints but that's not the way saints are talked about in the Bible a saint in the Bible is someone who's been a terrible sinner an awful scoundrel but they've begun to see themselves in light of the beauty and perfection of Jesus and they have turned away away from their scoundrel ways and turn toward Christ. They have fallen upon Christ. They have taken hold of Christ so that his holiness is now flowing into their lives so that his righteousness now defines who they are now, that his righteousness is becoming an increasing reality in the way they're living now so that they can anticipate in the future as being a saint who's going to one day enter into the presence of God. And I think that's incredibly good news for scoundrels like us, that there is hope for the worst of scoundrels to become glorified saints. Mm, wonderful. Love that. Amen. Well, Nancy, uh, thank you so much for the time that you've given to us today. It, as always, you're, you're a blessing to our listeners and also to uh, readers of your book. And, and I'm just personally very thankful for your work and, and uh, just encourage you to keep keep going and keep it up. Thanks, Dave. And thanks to your listeners for listening today. Enjoyed mm-hmm. being with you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Equipping You and Grace podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate us on the app, and share this with your friends and family on social media. If you want to find us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at Servants of Grace, on Instagram at Servants of Grace, or by searching at Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this episode and many others like it on the front page of our website, servantsofgrace.org.